This is the Pfeffer on Power podcast. I am your host, Stanford professor Jeffrey Pfeffer, where every other week we have on the program someone, an experienced, wonderful, interesting individual with whom I'm going to talk about their experience with power. And today I am honored and privileged, almost beyond belief, to have on the show Andrew Yang. Many of you will know Andrew Yang as someone who ran for president and not only has run for president, but has started a variety of nonprofit organizations to improve the operation of America's electoral system. Lord knows we need some improvement in many aspects of our (laughs) electoral system. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Great to be here, Jeff. Thank you for having me. I feel more powerful already. Oh, good. So I want to begin by getting, for those who don't know you, a very brief overview of your career. Start at like college, even where you came from, because you're, of course, an Asian American. I think, you know, Asian Americans, as we know, have faced recently in the U.S. a variety of forms of discrimination and actually in San Francisco, uh, some violence against them. So, you know, kind of your background, your education, your entrepreneurial background, and then how you got into politics. I'm very happy to share. My parents met at UC Berkeley as grad students from Taiwan. My brother's named after the Lawrence Observatory in Berkeley, so I joke that they must have had a good time there. (laughs) But uh, for me, I grew up in upstate New York. I went to Brown University and then Columbia Law. I actually almost went to Stanford As an undergrad, I got in but decided to go to Brown after my brother transferred to the East Coast. I practiced law for five whole months and then left to start an illfated.com in the early 2000s. It was around then that I became familiar with your work, Jeff, because I think you were a columnist in Business 2.0, which I was reading diligently to try and figure out (laughs) how to make my startup more effective. After that, I worked for a number of software companies, then became the head of an education company called Manhattan GMAT that many of your listeners might know if they went to business school. We became the number one GMAT prep provider in the country and were bought by a public company in 2009. I was 34 at the time, and I had the bright idea that the country needed more entrepreneurs. So I started a nonprofit called Venture for America to help train the next generation of company builder for the Midwest and the South primarily. Did that for six and a half years, realized that the economy was transforming in fundamental ways. I saw Trump's victory in 2016 as a massive cry for help in a red flag. And it's around then that I decided to run for president, which led me to people's TV screens. (laughs) Most people listening to this probably remember when I showed up on one of the debate stages and they said, huh, this is different. And then they Googled Asian guy next to Joe Biden and I popped up. So that's a little bit about my career, I was certainly something of an accidental presidential candidate. And after that, you've now continued to build organizations trying to help America. Talk a little bit about the organizations that you're now running. When I came off the trail, I unfortunately still felt despondent about the direction of American politics. And I realized that we are more polarized than ever and are set up to attack each other and become aggravated rather than solve problems. So I've started the Forward Party, which is a positive, unifying, independent political movement that is trying to move us to nonpartisan primaries and ranked choice voting, as have been adopted in 
Alaska, Maine, and now Nevada with a goal of turning off the extremes in American politics and making it so that rational, results-oriented policymakers actually run for office, get elected, and are able to govern effectively instead of this incoherent argument we're all subject to right now. And the thing that made me want to bring you on the program, plus the fact that we had this lovely breakfast in which, you know, we exchanged autographed books with each other. and uh, I got the better of that exchange, Jeff. Uh, I'm sure most people here have read, read some of your books, but uh, obviously uh, you're something of a guru around power. Yeah, thank you. Anyway, one of the things that really struck me in our conversation that morning at breakfast was how... You, a political candidate, a successful entrepreneur, an obviously talented and intelligent person, nonetheless, as you began your campaign and as your campaign unfolded and as your life unfolded, you were continually telling me stories of your campaign manager pointing out to you how you needed to do things that my book talked about, but that you weren't doing. And I would love some examples of that and to talk about how maybe your background as an Asian American had inhibited you from doing the things that would make you as powerful as you might otherwise have been. Oh yeah, I drove my campaign manager crazy. <laughs> but so one example that I remember vividly was that he took me aside and told me I needed to dress better. Uh, and I said, "What are you talking about? Uh, no one cares how I dress." And he said, "No, you're wrong. How you look really matters." And I tried to point out that Bernie Sanders looked like the scientist from Back to the Future, and no one cared. And he said, "But he's old. You're young." And so you need to present better. So he took me shopping, which I found ridiculous. He took me to a hairdresser, which I also found ridiculous, but it worked. I did look better. I did present better. My wife was more attracted to me, which was probably the clearest signal that he had done right. Uh, And I saw an improvement in the images and the media appearances and the videos. So that image making really mattered. And it it might sound ridiculous to people. Of course, it matters. You're running for president, et cetera, et cetera. But we went for months. (laughs) And you could actually find before and after 2018, 2019 photos if you're so inclined. So I joke in the book about how I had to get used to hair product as a 40-something-year-old man again. And it had been several decades since I'd used gel. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, one of the chapters in Seven Rules of Power talks about building a strong personal brand and personal branding. It consists, among other things, of obviously appearance, how you dress, what your look is like. Silicon Valley is famous for the hoodies. But if you're going to be on the presidential campaign, you have to, to use a phrase, look presidential. Yeah, it was true. Another example that would be relevant to a lot of folks is that my campaign manager sat me down and said, you have to use Twitter more and get good at it. And up to that point, I had maybe 4,000 Twitter followers, but running for president, that was an unacceptably low number. So I needed to improve on it. And as my Twitter following grew, I had journalists follow me and then asked to interview me. And I could see this snowball effect growing where the more followers I got, then the more serious journalists took me, which created a virtuous cycle around press coverage that we didn't experience in the first year. So that was something that was unnatural for me at first because 
if you are a 40 something year old, you don't necessarily think I'm going to start broadcasting my inner monologue on Twitter, but it turned into a really powerful campaign tool. Yep. And for those people who aren't planning to run for president, which I suspect is virtually all the listeners, the point about building a personal brand and looking like how you want to be seen is right. And I think the point of building a social media presence, again, so that people know who you are and what your ideas are, and your ideas may be, in the case of Andrews, around politics and bringing the country together, or your ideas may be about a particular technology or a particular piece of product or service, you have to get known, that's for sure. Yeah, I learned that several times over and over again, Jeff. It was one of these lessons where I wrote my first book when I was 39. And then I had to adopt a bunch of behaviors to promote the book. And then I had to learn those behaviors again when I ran for office. And there's like a conference speaking tour that I ended up hitting as the founder and CEO of a nonprofit. And that ended up leading to many, many funding opportunities. It was a staffer of mine at Venture for America who said something that helped kick me in the pants and, and get me out there. He said, look, For the organization to reach a certain level, Andrew Yang has to reach a certain level. And that freed me in a way because I felt a little bit bad leaving my team and going on these multi-day junkets to various conferences. It felt like poor leadership. But what was required at that time was for me to get out there and get the organization the resources it needed. And I think that's another important lesson. I mean, if you think about many of the, you know, the very famous public companies like Tesla or Apple or Google or, you know, um, at one point Microsoft for sure, certainly now Twitter, they are represented by the people who lead them. And just as your organization is represented by you. And so for you to build a successful organization, people need to know about you because we often, it may be accurate, it may be inaccurate, we associate the organization with the leader. So if the organization is going to get known and be successful, the leader has to be known and successful. Yeah. And and that was an adaptation for me too. I think As an Asian American, you're taught to think that you should let your work speak for itself, but the real world doesn't work like that most of the time. You have to actually speak for yourself and speak for your work. Yeah. And besides the things we've talked about, I know when you read uh, Seven Rules of Power, you found it interesting and it resonated with some of the things that you've done. What else out of that book is consistent with the transformations that you made? That book was spot on on so many levels. One lesson that I think I instinctively sensed but did not fully understand until I saw it on the page was that apologizing is not necessarily the right way to go if you are trying to present yourself positively, which is somewhat counterintuitive. I think a lot of us are taught that apologizing is a good thing and it's a high character thing and people will like you more. But in many political contexts, if you apologize, it unfortunately ends up making people think that you did something wrong and that there must be some truth to whatever the heck other people are saying. Sometimes, by the way, they're talking nonsense and it's complete fabrications. And so that was something that I experienced any number of times on the trail. And I have to say, I think your book is correct (laughs) that like, if someone apologizes. Other people look around and be like, oh, what are they apologizing for? And the other thing I think that I recall from our conversation, you correct me if I'm wrong, that one of the things that I think you had not done as much as you needed to do 
and which the book talks a lot about, was networking, which is building relationships. I mean, campaigns in some sense, and certainly political campaigns, but also building your nonprofit is a lot around relationships. It is a lot around meeting a sufficient number of people and meeting certainly a sufficient number of powerful people to get the support that the organization and you need. And my sense was that you did not, at one point in your life, engage in as much networking and social relationship building as you needed to. Now, I'm a naturally introverted person. I was a bookworm growing up. I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and read a lot of comic books, give you a sense. I was something of a sci-fi geek. And networking um, had a negative connotation uh, early in my career. Eventually, I grew to see networking as just trying to help people, and then it gets a lot easier and more positive. And I did have to build a bigger network to build a nonprofit and help grow it. And then that network was minuscule compared to what you would need if you were going to run a national campaign. And and so I had to meet a lot of new people. And I still am, I think, something of an ambivert where if you send me to a large scale event with lots of people, I'm not someone who necessarily gains energy from that kind of gathering. It's something of a mix for me now, but it's completely the case that networks pay enormous dividends if you're trying to build anything in that realm, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's running for office, whether it's a movement toward better politics and reforms like the Ford Party is undertaking. And that's something that I'd say has been a multi-decade process for me at this point. Yeah. But I think your answer illustrates an important point, which is Oftentimes, building social relationships is, in fact, a part of your job, a part of your role, and you have to do it successfully if your organization is going to be successful, whether or not it feels natural or comfortable. Yeah, I regard it as a responsibility. You know, if I want to see something positive in the world, I can't just sit and tappity-tappity on my laptop and hope that positive things will happen. I need to lead the way. I need to excite folks who could be allies. I need to have people trust me and feel like I'm someone that they know and can relate to. And I thought when I was younger that people respond to ideas. They primarily respond to other people. Even when you hear an idea, you try and associate it with a person. And I've now grown to regard that part of my job as something that I can derive real joy and value from because the relationships are real. You know, it's not like you're going around getting a bunch of fake friends or any of that jazz. I mean, anyone who wants to fix American politics and invests their time and energy and money and resources in nonpartisan primaries and ranked choice voting is my friend. Like I, I genuinely love and appreciate them. You know, I send them holiday messages, not because it's an obligation, but because I consider them now like a comrade in arms. And the other thing, my sense is that you probably had to develop, knowing you as as well as I do, is the idea of acting and speaking with power. That as you are, as all leaders are in profits or nonprofits or in political organizations, they are the vessel for the message of their organization. My sense is that you had to really build your speaking and presentation skills, not only in terms of how you dress, but basically in terms of how you presented your ideas. Yeah, my early campaign appearances were not terribly successful. And my campaign manager gave me an earful (laughs) where, again, I kind of thought the ideas would speak for themselves. 
I had a lot of facts and figures, a lot of statistics. And there's a different approach necessary if you're going to try and stir someone's passions and get them to tell their friends about you or the campaign. I'm happy to say that my capacities in that direction grew over a multi-month period when no one was paying attention to us in 2018. (laughs) So I got better, but it is a skill. It is a practiced skill. There are communications coaches. It's a physical act, but it's almost an athletic feat. When I showed up to presidential debates, I started approaching them as athletic competitions where I would be doing jumping jacks in the dressing room behind and just trying to get my energy up because that's what it started to feel like. And I have to say, I think that my performances improved as I adopted that kind of approach. I I think your answer illustrates two points. Number one, practice is important. And number two, you can in fact get coaching. And as you practice underskilled coaching, you get better. And that is a skill that if you keep it up, will not degrade and will serve you well as you build your next social movement. One thing that I was terrible at initially was remote TV appearances, where you would look at the camera and you can't see a human, by the way, most of the time. You just look at a light and you get a voice in your ear and then they ask you a question and then you're supposed to appear compelling while looking into the camera. I was so bad at them and I hated them. And my campaign manager tried to improve matters by putting real life supporters in front of me so that I could speak to humans instead of a light or having people behind me cheering. And that tended to rev me up more. Now, that's something that I got better at because it turns out if you do something dozens of times, (laughs) then you improve, you start to seem more natural, more comfortable, more believable, which is funny that the way you deliver actually impacts your believability. And I was mildly staggered when after I came off the presidential trail, CNN called me up and asked me to be a contributor because initially I thought of TV appearances as something to dread. But then I did them so many times that I became good enough that CNN actually wanted me to do more of them, (laughs) which was at the time like, wow, this is a mild surprise because I thought this wasn't something that I thrived in. But I grew to enjoy it during that period. None of this stuff is intrinsic. Let's put it that way. You can get stronger, get better, get more comfortable if you get reps and practice and put energy into it. And you use the word energy several times. Emotions are contagious and certainly energy is contagious. And I think you're exactly right. The ability to convince somebody of anything, to invest in your startup or to join you in some political movement really is an interpersonal connection, not just about the content of the message for sure. Yeah, I heard something and do not take this as like, I think Trump is a role model, but I heard that he was watching himself on TV with the volume off just so he could see how he seemed. And then if he thought he looked presidential, then he was happy. (laughs) You hear that and it seems ridiculous, but as someone who's been through this process and, and you're agreeing with this, There is some truth, unfortunately, to that approach, where if you appear presidential and strong, then people will receive you as presidential and strong, and the actual words may or may not be centrally important. 
And by the way, this is true for executive roles as well. There have been studies that show, you know, that salaries related to physical height. There have been studies that show that salaries related to physical attractiveness. I'm sure you've heard in your career, not just in politics, but in technology, people say they look like an executive or they look like, you know, a senior executive. Yeah, the New York Times had to issue a correction because they made me seem shorter than I was in a particular photo, which my team was mad about. And I just found hysterical, (laughs) to to your point, where those things do impact your credibility and standing, unfortunately. And you wish it wasn't that way. But one of the things that I've taken from you, Jeff, is that you have to take the world as it is and then try and maximize your ability to do good things within it. Well, I think, Andrew, your story illustrates I think a very important point, which is that these are all skills that can be mastered. Many people think I'm an introvert or I'm this or I'm that, and they cannot be changed. But I think your story really illustrates how these are skills. You can master these skills and you actually have to master these skills if you're going to go on and have influence and power in whatever sector you're going to operate in. Well, between you and me, Jeff, one of the reasons why I put myself out there was to try and get a date. And I'm so glad that I got a date with Evelyn, who I've now been happily married to for, <laughs> for oh, why don't we just celebrate our 12th wedding anniversary? But then after I got a date with Evelyn, then, you know, I had other goals that required getting out there. So I would encourage everyone to find something that they believe in and then see this process as part of your professional development. A lot of folks are very hardworking in terms of what they consider like their intellectual pursuits of their schoolwork. And they see this particular area as unintellectual or less important, but I've now grown to regard it as, as important, or in some cases more important, depending upon what you're trying to achieve. Andrew, you know, you ran for president that took effort. What impact do you think that's had on other people who have watched you enter the political arena? Just about every day, someone comes up to me and thanks me for running for president, saying that I made them think that different types of people could step into that arena, that great things were possible for perhaps immigrants or children of immigrants that they didn't think were even on the radar screen. And it's enormously inspiring and invigorating for me to know that I had that effect on people, some of whom are Asian, but a lot of them aren't. That's a great way to end. This has been the Pfeffer on Power podcast. I am your host, Stanford professor Jeffrey Pfeffer. Our podcast is available on Spotify, on Apple, on all your favorite platforms. You can follow me on LinkedIn. You can look this up at Pfeffer on Power. That's P-F-E-F-F-E-R on power.com. We have been talking today to the famous and wonderful Andrew Yang. One of the great joys of my life is getting to know you better. Thank you so much, Andrew, for being on the show. Thank you, Jeff. Looking forward to making the world a better place alongside you in the months and years to come. We've got a long way to go. 